We are now living in very, very trying times. He is one of the greatest world leaders and one of the greatest presidents in the world. And I'm really hoping and praying that he gets the support and the love and the respect that he needs and that all the tribulations that are going on now will be over soon and we will be living in a world of peace. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along his route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh. Tell you the truth, this guy's starting to get on my It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, folks, and welcome to another edition of The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Andrew Stasulis, and with me here today is... Eric Marsh. And no... Ryan Saunders. Our boy Ryan is on assignment in the City of Angels, Los Angeles. So we've got another gauntlet two-hander in store for our listeners this week. Um, It was my turn to pick the topic. And, you know, I, uh, I was thinking about President Vladimir Putin... You know, he just had a birthday. He just turned 70. It's a big, big age in a man's life, in a person's life, I guess. And I was thinking he must be having a really miserable birthday. You know, the world doesn't really think too highly of him right now. The war in Ukraine is not going as he had hoped. The Ukrainians are on the march, on the offensive. No one's recognizing Russia's new territory. And the only person who seemed to actually come out and wish him a public happy birthday is friend of the pod, Steven Seagal. So I thought maybe Marsh and I could try to cheer up Vladimir Putin a little bit. That we would uh, dive inside the belly of the beast of, of Russian state cinema and take a look at some films that I'm sure President Putin uh, thought very highly of and, and at the very least uh, offered in one way or another Russian state sponsorship for. So uh, the films that we're going to be looking at this week are, are you know, <laughs> not from, you know, that, that uh, the, the important counter-political voice of, of so many great filmmakers, you know, dealing with censorship and violence in uh, Vladimir Putin's state. But, but we thought we would sort of confront the 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 demons of his nearly totalitarian control of of the russian you know political and and media machines and uh and see what's inside those things you know confront that ideology the 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 ideology of the united russia and uh boy we have some uh 
some wild ones for you folks this week. You know, they were kind of hard to track down on a certain level. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you think about political events today, uh, that kind of makes sense. So uh, I guess we're going to have quite a spirited conversation uh, dealing with all this and, and you know, wallowing in all this, uh, this, this Russian propaganda. So I guess without further ado, we should bring these bring these things out, huh, Marsh? Why don't you get things started for us? What are the films? I guess we both, we, I should say, we, we sort of both agreed upon them together. We didn't really surprise each other. We really wanted to make sure we picked something that, that I think we could handle, wrap our heads around, and, and find in one way or another, like, amusing. And, uh, and so, Marsh, why don't you tell us about the first film uh, we, we took a look at? Yeah, well, I think I was, you know, I was sort of uh, hesitant at first because I think like most uh, people in the, the quote-unquote West or certainly in the United States uh, have, like, very little uh, familiarity with contemporary, like, Russian blockbuster-type cinema or even mainstream cinema, right? Like... Yeah, I I saw Generation P and Hard to Be a God, you know, these very obviously sort of like dissident uh, type uh, attitudes toward uh, the the Russian Federation. So I was, you know, I felt lost at sea and I was looking up all kinds of crazy shit and and the the sad reality or, or maybe not or whatever is like. The, these films are are difficult to see uh, where we are, right? Um, and so fitting that the film that I ended up uh, selecting with your guidance uh, is one of, if not the highest grossing film in post-Soviet Russian film history, uh, and it is completely unavailable to watch in the United States. But it was a massive blockbuster in both Russia and China. Uh, And this film is the 2017 basketball epic, Three Seconds, a.k.a. Going Vertical, directed by Anton Megaderchev. Megaderchev, that, yeah. um, Soviet Union, number six, Zurab Number 11, Michael Number 7, Never going to be able to pronounce these And it is the story of the Soviet national basketball team's triumphant victory over the United States in the 1972 Munich Olympics. And it focuses primarily uh, on the coach, Vladimir Granzin, which is not his real name, but a fictionalized version of, of this real coach, of course, who was hired in 1972 change the you know change the style of the Soviet national basketball team and bring them to glory in that great era of Soviet sports and that's what the movie is it is a corny chaotic 
uh, passionate, nationalistic, melodramatic film. I mean, it's Russian, you know? It's, it's got all that stuff you expect and more. It takes a broad uh, look at the idea, I think, of, of Russia in the film, right? Uh, in terms of incorporating and using uh, the different nationalities of uh, the basketball players to kind of make an argument for this, yes, united Russia that also includes... Uh, you know other other countries that that they lord over, right? Uh, and we'll talk we'll talk about that, obviously. But uh, yeah, I mean, you you basically pitched it to me, being like, yeah, there's a there's like a fake Doug Collins in this movie, and and boy, that really delivered, and and I couldn't help myself. So uh, yeah, it was really fun to see uh, a sports movie, uh, one so shamelessly modeled after the great Hollywood sports movie. Uh, as well so uh, yeah that's uh, that's three seconds thank you Marsh uh, yeah there's uh, there were quite a lot of little surprises uh, yes. buried deep inside that film that we're gonna have fun picking apart for sure well the film that I selected to sort of roll out this double feature uh, is a different kind of epic blockbuster biopic, a very unusual one. The film that I chose is Kalashnikov, AK-47, from 2020, directed by Konstantin Buzlov. Now, this film is an exploration of the development of the notorious assault rifle, the AK-47, perhaps the symbolic weapon of Russia, of the Soviet Union, of the Cold War. This is a really unusual film because it's sort of like a biopic about the, the man, Mikhail Kalashnikov, the man who designed the weapon, but it's also arguably just a sort of like biopic for the gun itself, right? And I think that's something we will uh, we will be able to discuss today, right? Is this a movie about a man or is this a movie about a gun? It's a really unusual film that could only come out of Vladimir Putin's Russia. The film follows the young Soviet tanker Mikhail Kalashnikov, who during World War II is wounded, uh, and then decides while he's recuperating to start tinkering, to start developing uh, a new advanced weapon, a much more reliable weapon for the, the Soviet forces who are fighting tooth and nail against, you know, the, the Wehrmacht's onslaught in 1941. And really, there isn't a whole lot of drama other than some, like, kind of manufactured moments of drama, which we're going to probably get into. But it really is just a movie about how this guy created this weapon, the, the, the most prolific assault rifle in the world. I think there's something like 200 million that have been produced. It's, uh, it's a weapon that uh, has a lot to answer for, but this movie will not attempt 
to answer any of that at all. It's really a flag-waving celebration of a gun, a killing machine. Uh, so yeah, that's the, the 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 film that I thought would be a really good way to to sort of balance out this very cursed very politically and spiritually cursed double feature that we have in store for our listeners this week. And, you know, maybe it'll put a smile on Putin's face if he's out there listening somewhere, you know? That's AK-47 Kalashnikov. Thank you, Andy. Yeah, I mean, I guess, like, thank you, you know, really. But, like, I I knew this was going to be on a certain level a, a sort of... Uh, a punishing week, you know, and and I know we both had a lot of fun, but I I have to emphasize right off the bat that these are are not really good movies, uh, you know, if you if you want to be thinking very critically of them, but for what they are, and for what they represent. Uh, in contemporary Russia, and I, I think I have a little bit more familiarity with it than than you do, Marsh, because, you know, maybe it's my Russian blood, maybe it's also my Lithuanian blood, but I find myself constantly sort of trying to to confront that side of my lineage, you know, and 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 wonder, you know, uh, how could we do so much good in this world as a people and then all just get so fucked up along the way, you know? So maybe there's a, a part of me that's just kind of masochistic about it all. But I I think I'm also just fascinated by ideology. And I think that's the, the thing that we can obviously launch into first here is is just that these are for people who like to to study ideology in cinema and especially big cinema and big national cinema i mean these are textbook cases of you know uh nationalistic propaganda in blockbuster cinema they are blatant in their depictions of what I guess you could say, both of them argue for Russian exceptionalism. Yeah, and they're both very specifically underdog stories. And that, you know, is is something that we're familiar with as, uh, you know, Americans, right? You and I, I know, have seen so many old Hollywood movies and, and you know, seen what that's all about. Uh, and I think in, in both of these films, you see those Hollywood tactics deployed, right? But in a very Russian way. Um, it's obviously not news that the global order has been at war with Russia for 100 or arguably 500 years. Years, right um and and so there's always that part of of the the like russian mentality that's like everyone is out to get us you know uh and if you know if we simply you know uh innovate uh, as i think both these films argue uh you know we'll beat the u.s one day just gotta work really hard at it and like both of these films have that element of uh, Kalashnikov being this rural peasant who just becomes an inventor out of nothing, you know, just through grit and, and grime. Uh, he becomes, you know, the man that designed the AK-47 with no formal education. And, of course, the Soviet basketball team uh, put together from, you know, he blew up the, the team they had, mostly guys from the 
Moscow team uh, and brought in guys from Georgia and Belarusia and Kazakhstan and Lithuania uh, to comprise this, you know, this national team and to use the new American techniques, weightlifting, training, uh, and all that stuff to confront uh, the United States, you know, very explicitly. Yeah. And that is it right off the bat with going vertical or three seconds, whatever it's, it's, you know, title is wherever you can sort of find it or, or hear about it. But, but that is what's made, uh, explicitly clear, right? This isn't so much a film about, you know, uh, Russian Olympic glory. This is about an impending showdown between the Soviet Union and the United States of America. This is about East versus West. This is Russia and America in the contemporary lens that has been fixed on this historical moment. And you're right, Marsh, because, you know, there's that telling line even where, you know, once the coach announces his plan to beat the U.S., uh, I, I, I'm not sure if it's the coach or another guy or one of their wives, but somebody at a, at a certain point specifically says no empires are eternal in speaking of the U.S., right? And they, they're, there's a lot of those like ideas and lines peppered throughout that, you know, you may think you're on top, but no one stays on top forever. And that is so pointed towards one country and one sort of, you know, uh, geopolitical, you know, mindset, which is America and NATO and the West. Yeah, and that's <laughs> part of uh, part of the fun as well, I think, of three seconds is seeing the depiction of Americans in a, in a variety of contexts oh because, you know, like, I mean, it's, you know, like turn, turn, turn about is fair play. You and I have both seen probably a combined thousand films that portray Russians as like evil backwards people. Yeah. And then to watch this movie where like during the final game, there's Americans wearing like overalls with the American <laughs> flag. Like they're like farmers. You know? Yeah, they look like extras. Do they look like extras from Hee Haw? Yes. Who are who are who somehow could be these country bumpkins, but have enough money to fly to fucking Munich in 1972 and root on the U.S. of A. Yeah, yeah. And then there's of course like you know part of the the opening up of the team is is to play exhibition matches, right? To get over this like isolationist mindset and get the the players against some quote-unquote foreign talent, you know, see what the modern game is all about. And so, a certain, you know, they do like a barnstorming tour, essentially, and they come to the United States, and there's a, there's a great scene where the guys in all their, like, goofy gear, you know, they've bought, like, cowboy boots or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, and they come across uh, a bunch of black teenage basketball players in an alley, you know, and they have this like street game where they lose, you know, to these guys, you know, uh, and just seeing that depiction in oh a Russian, God. you know, Russian movie, you know, and just the depiction of the United States, even the depiction of Munich, we, we'll talk about later is like, just like, I can't even, 
I can't even describe it. But oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so seeing it, you know, from the inside out was, of course, very funny. And and how like Doug Collins becomes like this fixation that the movie has that he's like mm-hmm. the biggest piece of shit on this other team, you know, because oh, yeah. he was kind of like the hero until he wasn't. But um, oh my god, dude! I mean, and I know that like. You know, this is a trap of movies that do like, you know, they they try to be period films and stuff like that. And so they try to get like period fashion and stuff. But like, I have to emphasize that like, in a way that is, is, is just absolutely kind of clueless, right? Um, Like every black man in this film has a like ridiculously large and unkempt afro like yes. a cartoonishly large afro you yeah, know the this afro is... budget on this movie was fucking huge oh my god yeah you know and yeah of course i mean the americans have to be the 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 bad guys and not in a even like respectful way i mean you can argue that there's maybe points where there's kind of like a grudging respect but really like Every American we come across is a buffoon, uh, a coward, or a thug, basically, you know, or just totally oblivious to the realities of the world. I think that's also a part of it, you know. It's this idea of, like, you know, the Russians are these, like, hard-scrabble people who have to fight for what they have, and Americans are just spoiled and entitled, essentially. And personified ultimately in this movie uh, by the only American star uh, of this film, John Savage, ladies and gentlemen. The legend himself appears as Hank Eba, the uh, angry, growly coach of uh, the USA Olympic team. Uh, And he's out there just clearly uh, improvising, right? (laughs) Oh, man, yeah. I want you to cover every player, do you understand? I want you to block every shot. I want you to steal every pass. Dwight, <laughs> I will stop pussyfooting with number 10, all right? Didn't you get my message I sent with Kevin? I'm sorry, coach. I'm a basketball player. I'm not a wrestler. There's no basketball players here. It's a bunch of drunken college girls at a disco. And I am sorry, gentlemen. But it is a contact sport. You understand what I'm talking about? As only John Savage can. I mean, honestly, when when I was watching this movie, I didn't. I guess I didn't really look at the full cast list, so I had no idea. I didn't go like down to the bottom where he was like listed, and I was just like, yeah, let's just watch going vertical. But then suddenly, when we get to the Olympics, and and the U.S. team marches out on the court like the fucking you know, the the evil empire in Star Wars, basically. Uh, and John Savage is like in tow. I was like, what? He's, of course, John fucking Savage is in this. And I, I, I gotta say, he is basically just like playing his character from the thin red line, if anybody's familiar with that movie. Like, everything he says is, as Marsh emphasized, like, it's not said so much as it's like spit out of his out of his mouth, right? He's just shouting, growling, snarling. Uh, just nothing but but just just vociferous exclamations all all together, you know. And yeah, he's uh he is a, a surreal like part of this. Um, but you know, it's like unusual, right? To see, 
I think American actors now, especially in contemporary Russian cinema, because of the state of things. So it's a it's a really kind of like uncanny moment, uh, to be honest, seeing John Savage in there. Yeah, I mean, a similar thing, uh, you know, to our audience, uh, Andy tried to well, we both tried to find this movie. <laughs> called first oscar uh because it's you know it's about like these soviet filmmakers in the in the 40s or whatever but michael lerner plays louis b <laughs> louis b mayer yeah. uh, and i saw the trailer and he looks like he's fucking like cgi dude it looks <laughs> it looks insane you know um I, I should say too like watching this movie we we ultimately could only find it in a 720p rip on a, a random Turkish Vimeo. Uh, so if you look up the Russian title of this movie in Google, like that'll come up. Uh, and it it was kind of uncanny uh, throughout because I think like a lot of, you know, just movies today, there's a lot of CGI, yeah. but it was also kind of like pixelated. And I was like, not sure, not sure at a certain point, like uh, the the reality of some of these shots and some of these things. And like, I know a lot of the crowd work, of course, is just like 2K, dude. Mm-hmm. Like the yeah. backgrounds <laughs> yeah. are just like auto-generated or whatever. And some of the shots in the game even looked to me like, I was like, wow, that this looks like fucking 2K right now. <laughs> like, this is wild, you know? Uh-huh. So like, there's that part of the experience as well, where it's like, didn't see this in the highest quality, but I don't think that would have mattered. It's just like a very high key lit fucking nonstop camera movement. Oh my uh, God. Just, you know, it, it's relentless, slow motion. Uh, just. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I think that's one of the keys to understand for people who obviously have never seen something like this, like a big Russian blockbuster of the last. I would say two decades. I mean, Putin, when he came into power, very quickly set about to revivify Russia's national cinema. And and not from the standpoint of promoting award-winning films at festivals and that sort of thing, you know, critically acclaimed movies, but, but really specifically in trying to uh, give the Russian people like big American style blockbuster entertainment. Like that's very specifically what, you know, has been a big project of, of, you know, his and, and the Russian states. And, and it's so obvious when you, when you watch a movie like this, that they really were just like looking at other American blockbusters and then just trying to sort of reverse engineer them, but without really understanding like why they're doing what they're doing. They just are like, we've seen this in something or this is what, you know, I kept thinking of the movie Miracle, uh, that movie with Kurt Russell, Miracle, like that, that it's so clear they modeled this off of that film because it was a similar setup, right? Like Miracle was about, you know, the, the United States first going to Olympics against the you know, the big boys on the block in international hockey, the Russians, and taking them on during the Cold War. So it's like, it's just so funny to see them just basically like try to reverse engineer it, try to hit the same notes, the same beats, the same emphasis on the daring coach making a bold statement and then getting us to that point. Uh, but but that, yeah, when you sort of just like look at it, 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 it really does just feel like a... a 
a fucking knockoff, you know? I mean, it isn't, it isn't its own organic thing that just developed out of trial and error in, in, you know, Russian creativity. Like, this was something that was basically, like, mandated, and people were, like, ordered to do this kind of thing, you know? And, and they were given clear models from which to build this thing, you know? I, I think that's why I kind of still find pleasure in them, even though they are hokey and corny and fucking, like, bad. It's just kind of wild to watch such blatant ripoffs of other things, you know, with with this, like, unabashed Russian nationalism. Yeah, at, at various points in three seconds, I thought of Hoosiers and I thought of Rocky. And I think oh, both, yeah. both films have uh, in common excessive use of um, of montage. And I, of course, mean American montage or Hollywood montage. And it, you know, of course, breaks uh, breaks all our hearts to see, uh, you know. Where did the Soviet montage go? But uh, no, it's like in Kalashnikov, it's like montage of the the factory workers building the new gun. You know, we do that like five times in the oh movie. God, it's like yeah. it's time for for Kalashnikov to create with all his brothers uh, in the you know in the factory. Let's see some sketches. Let's see some guys. Uh, you know, fucking working working the lathe, a lathe. The lathe. Yeah. yeah, working the lathe. You know, <laughs> all that stuff and it's like these are the 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 music montage of the classic hollywood cinema like compressing time showing achievement uh, mm-hmm. all in two minutes you know yeah i mean kalashnikov is is like the, i'll say this the construction of going vertical to me is is pretty crazy uh and and especially like when we kind of outline like the the climax of the film like how they decided to do that especially to this end of like these choices of compressing time because I have to emphasize this, that like the thing that I, I, while I was watching going vertical was just like, Oh my God, I can't believe this is like, we get this movie and, and it's, it's like two years are taking place over the course of like an hour and a half. And we're seeing the team get built and going through the trials and tribulations and their trip to America and family problems and all that bullshit. And then we get to like the showdown, the reason we're all here, right? The reason this movie was built and we get to the fucking game and it's like they they literally just played the whole fucking game in the movie, pretty much, right? I mean, it's like... Yeah. They compress a little bit in the second half in sneaky ways, but it is more or less real-time the game unfolds. Uh, with, with the score on the screen. The scoreboard on the screen the whole time as if we're just watching the game, right? I mean, that's... That is fucking nuts, you know? Uh, I mean, it's it's like deranged that you would do something like that. But it's like, it's so clear that they have to like revel in every fucking second of it. And they, for the most part, as you said, do like every shot, every fucking free throw, every time out is, is there for the Russian people to celebrate. And they pretty much lead the whole game as well. So there isn't even a whole... You know, it's not like you would write this, like, it's got to be a lot of back and forth. The Russian team is pretty much out front for 
God, until what? the last three seconds. <laughs> yeah, until like the very until, end. Yes, until Doug Collins hits the second free throw with three seconds left. That's the first U.S. lead of the game. Yeah, there, there's not a lot of back and forth there, uh, but they're still trying to wrench every ounce of drama from it. But, right, like as, as wild as the construction of going vertical is to me, Kalashnikov is like a whole nother like bit of cinematic insanity because as you mentioned it's like there is there's no drama in this movie whatsoever right not only is it inevitability that he's going to design this rifle that we all are very very familiar with in this world but there's 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 like never any like like you said there's there's no like, what are the, the tough things that he goes through in this? It's just, as you mentioned, like, like boy, I, I really hope they get this, like, this my plan right. You know, I really hope that they build this thing correctly. Or I think one of the dramatic moments early on is when it's revealed he's not a good draftsman. He can't draw or something. And it's like, yeah. well, you need a... You need a draftsman. And, and, and in the same way, they just try to sort of manufacture conflict in a movie that is basically without conflict for two hours. Well, it tries to set up, you know, a similar conceit to something that we've seen before on the pod, which is from White Son of the Desert, where he is the, you know, eternal wandering soldier. And I was recalling White Sun because there are mm-hmm. uh, pastoral flashbacks in both of the, those movies, right? Uh, of this idea of like, they're, they're trying, I think, <laughs> to be like, yes, that's the conflict, right? He can't go home because it's the war effort and his innovations. <laughs> um, but it doesn't really do a good job of, of really making it, you know, work, I think. Yeah. Uh, but there are these like letters, letters to home and stuff, you know, things like that. And they, they milk every second out of, you know, he's also a kind of an underdog, not only because of his education, but he's like, what, from Kazakhstan or whatever. He's like, he's just from the mountains. And, you know, what, speaking of ideology, Andy, I think both films do a very concerted effort to erase communist uh, ideology, obviously. Um, and there's, there is an interesting you know, thing going on in Kalashnikov where at a certain point he sees his brother in a prison train car. Yeah. And there's one other like reference to his family. Um, and... It's, you know, in reality, because his father was a kulak who was basically like liquidated by Stalin, like and forcibly gave away all his land. And and they kind of hinted that's like part of his, you know, adversity or whatever. But it's just like not willing to to really go there, you know? No. And in, in fact, like he he basically like disowns his brother in that moment. Yes, he does. Because right? the, the greater mission, you know? Yeah. The implication is that his brother got himself in that situation and he is a stain on the Kalashnikov name. I mean, you're right. The, 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 the big project of Putin especially has been to sort of like create this nostalgia for the Soviet union, but completely, uh, 
unwed from the communist politics, right? The communist ideology of it. But, but hey, remember when we all had cool uniforms? I mean, one of Putin's projects was to basically like resurrect the Soviet national anthem, but they changed the lyrics, but they kept the same rousing tune of the Soviet Union for their new, you know, the Russian Federation anthem, you know, and you see that in both of these films, as you pointed out, that that though the Soviet flag is quite present and though there's emphasis on, you know, these people being better together, stronger as part of something bigger than themselves, right? It is still so twisted from the realities of that time, both of the times that these films are taking place in. And, and in that regard, yeah, they, they are, are casting a sort of like fog over much of the actual politics that went behind a lot of the events or the, 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 the places where you could find drama. I think that's the big thing in Kalashnikov. It's like when you look at the story, when you watch the film, you can see so many places where you could be very thoughtful in this journey. You know, I mean, like, this is a story about a guy developing a killing machine. And there is not a single moment of actual reflection on what that means, right? There's never any sort of, boy, why do we live in a world where this is necessary, right? There's none of that. It is absolutely necessary. And boy, we better make sure we've got the best ones possible. You know, it's crazy when you think, especially about the Soviet journey in World War II, because the film makes a big point of starting in World War II and starting with a battle sequence where we see him in his tank, you know, fighting the Germans and stuff like that. But for a, a war that led to what, like 20 million Soviet casualties, there is like from that point on, there is no journey into the horrors of World War II. It's it's all way, way, way off in the distance. Uh, this is really just about a guy who is like, yes, some sort of like misunderstood artist, I think, is a good way of looking yeah. at it, you know? Yeah, it's sort of like watching a movie about like Thomas Edison, you know, or something like that. I mean, I, I thought of like classic Hollywood love to do like biopics in the thirties, you know, it was like the first talking decade. So they were like, you name them, we'll make a, we'll make a movie about them. And like, there's a ton of movies like that. And it is like, yeah, celebrating the, the American spirit and ingenuity and entrepreneurship and inventiveness, you know? So like, I think there's an element of that here uh, as well. I mean, Less of all, whatever, like, the funding for this movie or any of, of these movies comes from, I mean, my, Three Seconds was distributed by uh, a company, a subsidiary of Gazprom, you know? Like, yeah. I mean... Oh, yeah, yeah. So there's and that, right? Just yeah. Kalashnikov, the film, uh, received support from the Kalashnikov concern. The Kalashnikov <laughs> concern is the now largely state-owned consortium of Kalashnikov arms makers. Uh, you know, Kalashnikov, you know, created this weapon, and it was basically like the product of the Soviet state. But at a certain point, 
Kalashnikov, the Kalashnikov family basically owned, you know, the the rifle, I guess, or or the the company that would produce these rifles for the Soviet Union and for their allies. But uh, eventually the company kind of like was on hard times. And in like the mid 2010s, the Russian state, one of the many, you know, like Rostec, the, the, the state corporations bought the Kalashnikov concern. So now it's a state owned manufacturer of rifles and they were consultants on this film. So, so both of these films are not just like these is sort of like, yeah, in like independently financed and produced rousing sort of propaganda pieces. These are films which are both deeply tied to the machinery of Putin's modern Russia. Yeah. Like I want to just add something on to what we were talking about in terms of like reimagining the Soviet past, because like what it's really doing, I think is like reimagining the Soviet past and, and recognizing in that, like, the imperial past was, like, the good part about it. And I think both films have their share of, like, Soviet bureaucrats and frustrations with the system. Nothing too extreme, but enough to go, like, ah, people are kind of, like, desperate, you know? Like, in, in various situations, there's also spies in both movies, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, there's that element of surveillance going on. So, like... It's not, you know, saying like the Soviet system was good, but it's saying like, well, part of it was, and and part of that is like everyone was under the the banner of Russia, you know? And so it's like, yeah, it is this really like, you know, fascinating like projection of the contemporary into the past and and also like reclaiming part of the the formerly discredited imperial Russian experiment, you know? Yeah. Because even then, like when you bring up the idea of like um, you know the the spies and the 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 uh, the bureaucrats and stuff like that, I think that both films, again in a very like contemporary projection, as you said, they 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 depict them in both of these films as just sort of like minor inconveniences that everybody had to deal with at this time, right? In in going vertical very early on, there's like a scene where they were traveling abroad. I think it was right after the game against Yugoslavia. And they, they come back from the Euro championships and they get sent down to customs and they have to get all their luggage gone through. Uh, but it's really just like no, depicted no differently than what any of us deal with uh, in terms of just like flying normally and having to deal with fucking TSA in America, right? It isn't as like as invasive or oh, villainous. They had a much easier time than any of us do. Yeah, like they opened up the suitcase <laughs> and they they looked at one guy's Bible and they were like, "What's this for?" And he's like, "It's a Bible." And they were like, mm, "Okay, you know." But it's like that's it, you know. Like no one was busted, no one was thrown into a gulag, certainly, or anything like that. It's just this kind of like. Yeah, as you said, like, boy, yeah, it sure wasn't perfect back then, but I guess no one's really perfect, you know? And and in a weird way, too, I think that's implanted to sort of normalize a lot of the invasions into Russian privacy that that you have today. Like, it's just like, well, this is just what life is like, you know? Like, this is what governments do. This is what happens to people. Now, it's funny, too, because, like, there is this... I think you mentioned even with the spies, like in going vertical, uh, I think it's very telling 
that the most kind of Cold War intrigue that really does kind of insert itself into the film and the story revolves almost exclusively around one player on the team, uh, Modestus Palauskas, the Lithuanian captain of the Soviet national team. And, you know, the film very clearly, of course, as we said, sets up the Americans as like the antagonists and the villains. But this film goes to great lengths to separate the Lithuanian player from the rest of the group at various points. And as a, you know, proud Lithuanian man myself, I certainly felt uh, attacked and felt the slights from that. But it's a big point, especially in contemporary Russia, because Lithuania has a very very charged relationship with Russia, and they emphasize that. This guy is not really a part of the team, even though he's on the team, you know? They they go to great lengths to set that up and even manufacture some strange drama of him sneaking away from the team to defect at a certain point, right? I mean, did you did you feel that as well, that that was like a very, very, very politically motivated choice, especially through a contemporary lens? Absolutely. And I think there's aspects of that in, in every player depicted. And the film goes to great lengths to do a loving portrayal of the Georgian people, uh, lest we forget the Georgian war that happened, you know, uh, in our lifetime, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, and there's, you know, there's a Belarusian, there's a, a, a Kazakh guy. But, you know, very specifically, I noticed something else, Andy, and that is there's a Ukrainian guy on the team, but he has no lines mm-hmm. and he does not play. Mm-hmm. Like in real life, there was a Ukrainian guy on the team, and oh, I assume yeah. he's on the team in this movie, and he does not exist. Yes, um, and that's um, an, a choice, you know. Just mm-hmm. as the Lithuanian being being a part is also a choice. And personally, I'm just offended because they couldn't find a player from Latvia, uh, <laughs> where I, where you know my great grandmother was from. Uh-huh. Uh, Where's the Latvian player? Where's the Latvian star? Kristaps yeah. Porzingis, you know? Yeah, Where's he? 1972. Mm-hmm. Yeah, come on. You couldn't you couldn't dig deep enough there, right? But yeah, no, I mean, like, P- Palowski's the Lithuanian. Like, he has all these moments where he's asked, you know, like, what matters to you? And, and you know, when he's confronted with these things, you know, in the team-building dynamics, he often says, Lithuania. He doesn't say the Soviet Union. He puts Lithuania above all. I want to be free. You know, there's even this like moment after one of the games where they're in like a bar and they're all like singing folk songs. And then he comes in like this sort of like drunken oaf and just says, I'm going to sing a Lithuanian song now. And they almost have like a fight over it because he's yeah. like feeling he's like... He's to be taken outside. Oh. Kastani langa daljesi, suvarges ir sušalės, tai giriu paukštėm. Sčias u nich jis šens, ani na piki. Žiūrėjim v sportu u nich voj, u kavo kalinė razvalica, tos katušek svetit. A šias vse kak nada. Griš, neužali tai nečiūstuš? Paukštė marga. Ani dopėl. 
Прости, я не понял просто. А вы никогда нас не понимали. В смысле? Да вы, русский, всегда свой поперек встаете. Что ты несешь? Не нравится, как поем? Не нравится, как живем? Не нравится? Yeah, never actually from my understanding happened at all but they have to like keep inserting this and i don't know if you noticed but at the very end even like after the russians win uh and after the soviet i should say the soviets win after the soviets win and everybody on the court is celebrating they cut to a shot of the lithuanian dude and he's not celebrating with the team but he's celebrating with like his like CIA handlers who were going to help him defect or whatever. Like he's like jumping up and down with these like two spies or some West German agent. You know? Yeah, exactly. dude. He's just like celebrating with them, you know? And the reality for that player is like, he spent his entire career in the Soviet union and then Lithuania. I mean, like the dude didn't defect. Like that was never, never a part of his actual story. But You know, again, through the modern lens of Russia, like, you know, Lithuania broke free and they never fucking looked back. And they made big points, especially with their basketball team of saying, hey, you know, we played under that flag like the 1980 Olympics as well. Right. We played under that flag, but we were Lithuanians playing under that flag, not Soviets, not parts of the Soviet Union. Right. Certainly not willing participants anyway. Yeah, and and the whole movie is about them buying into the greater idea of Russia, and and everyone has their individual moments, uh, even to the point where like several characters are like, "I understand now," you know, like just really laying it on thick. And there's you know multiple subplots about medical problems. Uh, one of which, of course, uh, not fabricated. Uh, Sasha Belov, the center of the Soviet team, did have a heart condition, and he did die like at 26, mm-hmm. uh, not you know not long after they won or whatever. And that's portrayed you know again as the the rogue coach like gives all his money to this like players medical bills uh and there's again yeah all this like brotherhood and and solidarity and again trying to yeah incorporate everyone uh for russia you know and like a slight i feel against the american medical system they have a a very specific (laughs) yeah they they have these like very specific moments in the hospital and they they keep emphasizing that like Oh, you got sick in the United States of America? You'll never be able to pay for that, you know? Like, yeah. you're, you're, and they're you're right. Gonna... <laughs> well, that's <laughs> a fucked up thing, of course. It's like, fair play to you. They are 100% correct on that. But <laughs> but yeah, you know, like the, the moments of, of like, like the note that I wrote down when I was watching the movie, you know, is that like, I feel like in the United States of America, we have a tendency to, you know, like our modus operandi and so much of our media is to turn turn politics into sport. And it's like, I was thinking of like the Walter Benjamin line about, you know, the difference between communism and fascism, right? And I was sort of playing with that. And I was like, okay, if in the United States of America, we love turning politics into a spectator sport, in the Soviet Union, they love turning sport into politics, right? And and obviously we've been, we've been discussing that, but it's like so interesting watching something like this and seeing like what they choose to like politicize and then what things they really just like 
don't touch with a fucking 10 foot pole. And, and we have to simply bring this up because those of you asking, oh wait, 1972 Munich Olympics, wasn't there some didn't, big yeah, fucking... Didn't something happen? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, don't worry. That is covered sort of by this film. Uh, and again, they sort of manufacture some drama where, you know, the Georgian players have like a Jewish cousin on the Israeli wrestling team. And it's like, uh-oh, is he going to get, you know, like, is he going to get wrapped up in this? But what's hilarious is that they don't. And in fact, like while the terrorist event is like playing in the background of the drama of the team and the real politics of whether or not the Lithuanian is going to defect, like everyone's just kind of like annoyed by the <laughs> terrorist attack. Like, like, God damn it. Like, will these guys get off? I mean, I, I, I can't emphasize enough. This is what you would consider in like the United States of America, like, if you're making a thing about the Munich Olympics, it's like you gotta. It's the that that's the biggest event of the Munich Olympics. Spielberg did it, you know? right? But no, 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 no. The biggest event of the Munich Olympics is this goddamn game. And when the Georgian players do eventually like show back up at the hotel, they all have like a, a big, like boisterous, like laugh they're about wasted, it. They're wasted, yeah. Yeah, they're like cracking up. They're like, we thought you guys were fucking dead, you know? <laughs> they're like cracking up, dude. It is so bizarre. It's so fucking twisted. The whole Munich sequence to me was fascinating because I can only describe it as like Tativille. Uh, it's like all that's, all that's portrayed is like the Olympic village, which in this representation is just like all these identical white sort of like apartment buildings. And they're doing lots of like drone shots with CGI backgrounds and everything looks kind of like fake and weird. And then mm -hmm. all of the sudden, yeah, it's like, the terrorists and immediately yeah. they're discussing basketball and, <laughs> and like they're like it's amazing because like you get honed in on these arguments right between the coach and you know the sports committee guy uh Grigori uh and the other coach and all of a sudden it's like five minutes have passed and they cut to a wide shot and there are Palestinian terrorists with submachine guns like 50 feet away from them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just like hanging out on the balcony of the hotel. Yeah. Oh my God. The whole thing felt like a, a really strange video game dream. Dude, uh, it's, it, it's, it was fucking wild, man. It's fucked up. And then the crazy thing is that it's like, they, they sort of try to like link that event as, as a, as a, like a teaching moment for the team, because as you mentioned, like they're really just discussing basketball during all of this. And, and, you know, uh, the, if the Lithuanian player defects, then like, how the fuck are we going to beat the Americans? Cause you know, he is the captain. He's one of the best players. He's, he's the star of the team ostensibly. Uh, and so one of the coaches comes up with a brilliant idea well, why don't we just, you know, use the defection as a way of saying the Americans manipulated our roster, we're withdrawing in protest, and then we don't have to face the prospect of losing. And it's like, great idea, right? But then, like, they go to this press conference, like, after they hear that all the Israeli, you know, the, the, the disasters, you know, the tragedy of that whole event, which is well covered in other areas. Uh, they go to the press conference where basically the, the, the Soviets are going to announce that they're, they're leaving the Olympics. They're withdrawing in protest. And the coach 
has this like weird statement at a certain point, you know, like, no, we are going to play and we're going to beat the U.S. And then he says, I think it's the coach or it's the assistant coach. One of them says, To play no matter what. I wrote the line down. Sport is more beautiful than any kind of war, cold or real. And I was like, the, the fucking crazy thing about that line to me is the emphasis that if you actually like look at it, and obviously translation is one thing, but it's like, there's an implication that war is beautiful and that sport is more beautiful than yes, war. Right? Absolutely. <laughs> like what the hell does that fucking mean? You know, but again, like for the Russians and, and especially for the contemporary Russia, like war has to be a beautiful thing. War is a beautiful thing. And in a much weirder way that like war is made into entertainment in the U S like it's referred to so poetically in, in, in this film and especially in AK 47, you know, it, it was like clear to me watching AK 47 as well, that they were like, they had watched some Tarkovsky, uh, like the farm that he goes to looks so much like the fucking, like the, the farm from his memories in mirror. I don't know if you thought that yeah. but I, I could have sworn it was like the same fucking farm. And like you said, those, the idyllic, memories to pastoral life. But of course the twisted thing is in these memories of a child and like, you know, the wheat fields of the fucking like Kazakh steppe, he's building guns. You yes. know? <laughs> I was thinking like just a child building guns is such a twisted image in any other place on earth. But in Russia, this is just like this, it's like a, a, a moment of like Terrence Malick-esque transcendent beauty yeah in gun crazy we killed them at the end you know uh but but not so much here <laughs> yeah yeah i mean man like oh my god it's like both of these movies they, they really did hurt my brain uh they hurt my brain but but like at the same time like it was like a car wreck i could not look away from either of them you know yeah i can't i can't tell what's worse because like on a certain level we can say i think you know fairly to your point about tarkovsky that the the makers of ak47 uh you know used a tripod they composed shots like there's some there's like some mise-en-scene whether or not there's a lot of drama uh there are there are some like thoughtful moments and it's like generally a well like framed movie you know both these movies of course are two three five for no reason um <laughs> and yeah like versus yeah just like the total like zany post-continuity uh approach of <laughs> of three seconds which is fascinating too because like as the final game unfolds more or less in real time uh it's not experienced in real time because there's you know there's a lot of playing with time within that with slow motion and with like all, just a ton of other you know slapdash techniques thrown in there it felt oh. almost like a michael mann uh, commercial you know like yeah. the way uh you know the classic like nike commercial feels at times oh yeah it kind of felt like that the way they were like 
moving the camera fast while the players were in slow motion. And it was mm-hmm. like totally like television commercial techniques kind of like applied to this, this climax. Like, oh yeah. The speed ramping going on through that whole fucking game was, was like giving me motion sickness at times. <laughs> I swear. Here's my question. Here's my question to you, you know, Marsh, because look, you, you are, uh, a man who has taught me quite a bit about basketball over the years. Uh, and there is certainly basketball played in this film. Uh, at, at times a lot, at times very little. Uh, we get like a, a very important game of theirs at a certain point that just goes by with a shot of the coach uh, in a blur, basically. Like he he's just sort of like in a in a disassociative state for the game against Cuba. But, but then, of course, they we win do get somehow. Like, yeah, they win somehow. Our um, 17th Republic, Cuba, oh my as God, they're yeah. referred to. I love that. I love that. But but my question to you is like, okay, obviously we've been like covering a lot of the, the nationalism here and the fucked up Putin's, you know, uh, united Russian ideology. But, but what do you think about the basketball that's played in this in this film? Where does that rate for you? I mean... I'll be honest, uh, in terms of being historically accurate, uh, very, very low. Uh, (laughs) It is very much a modern representation of basketball imagined into the past. And I have a, a, a surprise for Putin as well, Andy. I also watched the entire game uh, on YouTube. Oh, yes. uh, the only copy I could find was with a, a Russian guy talking over it, so I couldn't hear the commentary uh, either. But I watched the whole game to double check, you know, because I know obviously this is a notorious incident in the United States. Like we haven't even yeah. mentioned what the, the, what the title refers to, which is the contra- very controversial conclusion to the game. And, and yeah, the, the depiction... Let me let me get one thing straight for for you and for our audience. Uh, there were no dunks. In, <laughs> I knew that in I the knew. final game of the 1972 Olympics, and and in this film, uh, there are many. There are through the legs dunks. There are uh, reverse jams. Uh, even earlier in the barnstorming sequence, a really chunky white guy just completely shatters a backboard like Shaq. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm sorry, in 1972, this was not going on. Like, maybe in the ABA and even then, like, not even close to the levels of just like, yeah, dudes are just dunking. Like, none of those Soviet guys could dunk. Are you kidding me? <laughs> no way. Oh, my God. But, you know, I think I think it does capture like something I think accurate about the game, which is like the size and speed of the Americans is, is presented really well because they were, you know, a bunch of college guys. They're fucking ripped. They're tall. They're strong. And these guys are, are older, you know, they're mm-hmm. not in college, right? You know, they're, they're professionals, uh, in a Soviet context yeah. and they're all kind of like grizzled, grizzled veterans. Yeah. One one dude uh, can't see straight. It's revealed, right? He he is like yeah. he's lied to them about his vision, so he like can't even like catch the ball. We got another guy whose knee is just like giving out with every like layup he does, and then we have to say nothing of the guy you mentioned earlier who's constantly collapsing on the court with like heart attacks. But 
Yeah, the Soviet team is, uh, they're put together with like tape. Uh, yeah, and, and one thing is consistent, which is, of course, that Sergei Belov uh, is the, the Michael Jordan of the Soviet Union. And he, at a certain point in real life and in as depicted, you know, scores 10 in a row. He had like 20 something points. Uh, and he's, of course, you know, portrayed as like the, the real special guy, you yeah. know, because mm-hmm. uh, Pulaskis is very much like the captain and he's like, the you know, the biggest player in Lithuania and he's basically as good as him. But, you know, it really this film really elevates Belov to be well, he's, you know, he's the Russian guy and he's really the yeah. best guy, you know, and God, because it really is. It's everything we're talking about, because now you think about it, the Russian guys specifically are, are given so much emphasis the other Belov, Sasha, the center, gets the romantic subplot with the woman from uh, the women's basketball team, Sanya. Mm-hmm. And they have this whole drama because he's got a bad heart and, and they're going to get married. And that is just like ridiculous melodrama, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's really like, yeah, hyping up the Russians uh, and the special contributions, of course, in the game of the Georgians uh, mm-hmm. as they switch up their tactics. Uh, but really, yeah, I mean, like, it, it's not an it's not really an accurate representation of the game. Even the physical stuff in the movie is so dramatic. Uh, there's really not a lot of, like, elbows being thrown in the real game the way that it's depicted here. Even the, like, the ejection is, like, nothing. Like, it, it really was an overreaction uh, in the real game to, like, two guys who were, like, about to fight but hadn't yet, and they just threw them both out whereas it's much more confrontational in the movie where it's oh my like... god i mean in the movie from like the get-go like john savage as hank eba is like putting out hits on the russian players he's like i want you to get in there i want you to cream them i don't want you to crush them i mean he is just like saying this is a contact sport you know play physical bust he sends one of the players i think jim brewer and he's basically telling him to like you see this extended sequence of him like trying very hard to like knock down one of the Russian players. And he's like, I'm a basketball player, not a wrestler or whatever. And then Eva, of course, John Savage, so villainous. He's just like, you guys aren't a bunch of basketball players. You're a bunch of disco girls. I mean, it's fucking it's insane because, yeah, the, they emphasize that the Americans have to win by being thugs, by being brutes. You know, Doug Collins as well is like told to like, you know, play psychological warfare with the other players, get inside their heads. And again, I, I got to give a special shout out to John Savage's coaching. And I, I agree with you. Probably they just told him to say whatever the hell he wanted, you know, as like an American, because his halftime speech is was to me like a, a thing of brilliance, but it belonged in like an entirely different movie, right? I, I loved I loved his pep talk. You've all got contracts for top teams back in the US. And you're gonna have some players there that know how to finish the fight to the end, no matter what. How to win. Not just because you can, but because you have to. Damn it. I've given my life to basketball. This is my third and last Olympics. And this is the best team that I've ever had.
So we got to, though, we got to also, though, as you mentioned, right, the, the, the title of the film, Three Seconds, refers yes. to, of course, the controversial ending, which, depending on which side of the Iron Curtain you would find yourself, uh, you're going to have a very, probably, very different read of, like, those three seconds and what happened in this movie as a very clear uh, Russian perspective on that very, very, very disputed ending to this game. Yes. Uh, the controversial ending, of course, is as Doug Collins takes, uh, you know, a one point lead for Team USA uh, after getting like totally, totally destroyed. Uh, so his head goes like under the basket, <laughs> under the basket. Uh they, uh, as depicted in the film, right, uh, the coach of the Russian team tries to call a timeout and there is like a miscommunication amongst the referees and the scorers table uh, as they end the game prematurely. And then they get it all sorted out and they put one second back on the clock. And as the Russians, you know, pass the ball in, the buzzer rings and the game ends. And then there's arguing at the scorer's table, and then they clarify that uh, we fucked up. There should have been three seconds uh, on the scoreboard. There wasn't, uh, so we're going to play it again. And the Americans, you know, almost walked out at that moment, uh, you know, but then they decided, like, oh, okay, well, we'll just play this out. You know, what's three seconds? Uh, and in that three seconds, the Soviet team chucked the ball all the way down the court to Sasha Belov, who scored uh, with no time with no time remaining. And the Soviets ended the United States' 63-game winning streak they had never lost in the history of the Olympics. And uh, that's the, the three seconds. <laughs> and in the United States, of course, the popular gospel is that, you know, the USSR fucking cheated us out of a gold medal but uh i'm a i'm a truther uh andy i got to admit and i mm -hmm. i do think uh you can't you know i've seen documentaries on this subject you know and you watch the game and i watch the game but you can you can hear the buzzer going off as collins is shooting his second free throw which is like the timeout buzzer and so that like it, it just was fucked from there because like yeah. they were trying to call a timeout but then he shot it and they counted it and then they were like well but they called timeout uh and it is all like i think you know fair to a certain extent however uh one of the issues that is portrayed very funny in this movie <laughs> is the intervention of dr jones this like brit weird british german guy who of course is a real person who basically started fiba he's like the you know he's the naismith of europe and asia basically and he's there and he intervenes and is like gentlemen mr moisier is right you must put three seconds on the timer and give the soviets an opportunity to throw the ball in again. These are the rules. Basketball is a gentleman's sport. <laughs> Which he says, 
multiple times uh and it's it's insane uh but that like basically happened like this old fucking man from FIBA who's not connected to the Olympics was just like you know yelled at the refs uh and and they put three seconds up on the clock and I think you know it's not a conspiracy he didn't think the Russians were gonna fucking score he was just like in the honor of fairness like let them have three seconds like that's what it should have been all along yeah what difference is three seconds gonna make (laughs) at this point Exactly. What fucking difference does it make? And of course, it, it makes all the difference. And I think, again, the title uh, ties so well into the the message, the meaning of the movie. It's that three seconds mm-hmm. is how you're going to defeat the, the empire, right? You know, it is going to come down to a matter of details mm-hmm. and, and going the extra mile, putting the extra effort in because it's that, you know. The, the the line between winning and losing is is so thin. Mm-hmm. Um, so absolutely, and they make a lot of emphasis on that point, you know, about about nothing. Again, going back to the 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 original thesis that no empire is eternal; nothing lasts forever, and that's of course. It, it, for the Russians especially, has like multiple meanings because that's also referring to the Soviet Union and the ticking clock on that phase of their, you know, their 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 journey as a people, as a, as a country, as a nation. But it's like, yeah, it's this idea of 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 not worrying about that, right? Not worrying about the the fact that things aren't eternal, that things will end, right? Don't worry about that. Just give yourself at all points. You know, don't be thinking about the future and don't necessarily think about the past, right? Just focus on doing what you have to do in this moment. Yeah, that is... It 100%. Now, I mean, we've really spent most of our time here going through <laughs> this the basketball movie, which, because again, I think has like more drama. Like it's more of a movie. There's like conflict, you know, there's, there's a battle that's taking place. But AK-47, I mean, it is a, it is a really interesting film, even if it is kind of devoid of of all that stuff, you know, like the very simple fact, again, as I said in my intro, that you have this movie that is sort of like, again, yes, a, a, a biopic, a testament to entrepreneurship and, and inventiveness and, and ingenuity, but it's really like a, a love song to this this rifle to this like weapon, you know? And I, I was like, I kept thinking to myself when I was watching it, like, it's so crazy that we don't really have anything like this in the United States of America for how crazy our gun culture is, right? Can you think of anything that's sort of an equivalent to this? Winchester 73? I was going to bring up Winchester 73, right? But but even that, right? There, that, That's like, a, it's a Western. There's drama. There's conflict, wow. you know? Oh, yeah. you mean in the construction. I thought you meant in terms of like movies that were like, 
about the the proliferation of uh, of a, a particular weapon because there's yeah. a tradition of that. I recently, you know, a couple months back, watched Springfield Rifle, uh, which is all about how the Springfield Rifle turned the tide in the Civil War or whatever. You know, Th- that is true. And now that you point that, out, I do know of a weird Western from I think the '60s or '70s that's just specifically about the development of the Gatling gun, but I've never seen that one. <laughs> but you know a what? Lot I of drama. That <laughs> well, for some people, maybe you know, uh, not people on the other end of it, I guess. Oh, but, no. but the you know, the thing that I was like comparing this to in my mind was I was, I was like, I, I, I kind of was like, I thought that for me, like the closest thing that I could kind of think of was like Fat Man and the Little Boy or Nolan's upcoming Oppenheimer, right? About like the US developing the A bomb, because for us. You know, if you think about the point being right, like a weapon that changed the world, uh, a, a development like that of some kind of arms, like we've gotten a lot more cachet out of out of, you know, Los Alamos uh, than we have necessarily with a an obsolete Springfield rifle. You know what I mean? The repeating rifle changed everything. Yeah, it sure did, you know. <laughs> But but again, even like in that, like in Fat Man and the Little Boy, I don't know if you've seen that movie with Paul Newman. I haven't. And and from what I imagine, you know, Oppenheimer is going to be about. One can only imagine with Nolan, uh, and and knowing about Oppenheimer and his like regret over that whole thing. There's there's so much more thought into that, into like the destruction that these things caused and there is again none of that whatsoever in ak-47 i mean they emphasize like details about this gun and and to me there's just so much irony this movie is just like it is like irony the movie because like they're going over so many things about this rifle like at a certain point they they're all lauding its simplicity the brilliance of its simplicity that that the only thing they didn't say was it's so simple a child could disassemble and reassemble it. you know like <laughs> a, a, an 8 year old could pick this thing up and 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 learn how to use it very quickly right they keep making all these points that it's like that's particularly what has made this thing such a horrible killing machine, such a such a weapon of destruction in the hands of, again, like hundreds of millions of disenfranchised people throughout. You know, I think even Kalashnikov said at one point later in his life, like, with an AK-47 in your hand, everyone is a revolutionary, you know, something along those lines. But even something like that, right, is not explored at all oh, no. in this film. That's not that's not going to be tolerated, you know, um, for obvious reasons, I think, you know, lest anyone in... Uh you know, Russia wants to pick up an AK-47 and do something, do something about it, you know? Well, right, because again, like, the point of this rifle, like, as it stood as a symbol, like, as a weapon, has often been that, you know? It's the, it's the, the, the weapon of the underdog, of the revolutionary, you know? It's, it's been this thing that was created, and then for the Soviet Union, it was, like, disseminated to all of these, like, fledgling young nations who were, at times, fighting against their colonial overlords. And and the point was that it was cheap and it was easy to make and manufacture and it could handle itself in all these conditions. 
which again would have been this like interesting thing to explore, like if Kalashnikov did have this sort of political consciousness. But man, he's kind of like. I mean, he's just like a fucking freak in this movie. And I loved, I don't know if you picked up on this, but to me, like where this movie really like showed how completely like disconnected it was from reality was again in like a normal film construction, right? Especially modeling off of the Americans and, and how our movies flow and the idea of beats and, and the, the high point, the low point, the lowest moment his fucking lowest moment that they manufactured. Did you pick up on what his like lowest moment was in the film? The lowest moment for his character where he's the most depressed was the Soviet victory in world war two. True. Because he's like, he says to his like fucking wife or whatever. He's just like, now no one will need a rifle loop when, when there's peace. Like, and he's like, he's bummed about it. And we're supposed to, as an audience, be like, oh, poor guy. Like, the fucking war ended and now he can't get his gun made or whatever. And but his like, wife has the, a great idea. She wants to make an electric meat grinder, you know? Yeah. Some people yeah. can use, you know? Yeah, right? Like, but no, for him, it's just like, God damn it, the war's over. And now I'm not going to be able to make my fucking rifle. This sucks. And then just like in, you know, certain Westerns that like, you know, we'll have like Abe Lincoln, like writing something out, like I declare the railroads or whatever. Uh, in this film, we get like the 1947, like state directive to mass produce weapons. And that's kind yeah. of like the, the climax, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, thank God we can, you know, Produce more weapons. Produce more weapons. (laughs) Produce more fucking machine guns. Yeah. The the reason that decree in part was made was because of the American hostility towards the Russians after World War II and the Russians realizing the Soviets going like, fuck, these guys, uh, you know, they they don't want to share the world at all. Like, we need to, like, continue to manufacture weapons. Like, we need to be now in a constant state of war. And they... They don't mention that at all. Again, it's like this very selective exploration of something that is so... It's funny, right? Because like going vertical is embedding this, again, like sports thing into politics. And here we have a rifle, which is, you know, when politics essentially breaks down and fails, the the ultimate, you know, tool for that, for political disputes. And they, they, they don't touch upon it in any way shape or form but we sure do get a lot of gun pageants we get a lot of gun pageants a lot of range stuff andy how how was that for you you know just like the basketball for me what was it like being at the range in yeah uh, in the I soviet mean, union I'm, I'm a little bit of a gun dork you know uh i'm a little bit of a of a of a gun nerd not a gun nut you know i would say but like as a student of history, as someone who's fascinated by history, I, I'm often also fascinated by the minutiae and weapons. And I was a kid who grew up playing with G.I. Joes. So, like, you know, there's an aesthetic part of it to me that's just always like, you know. And I have to say, what's funny in this movie is that they, they have, like, a cavalcade of stars in the world of, like, gunsmithing and gun manufacturing. And these names in the film are said with such reverence and most of those names will fly right over the head of like your average viewer but like in a place like russia where they do put so much emphasis on like these people as as not just like 
sowers of, of death and destruction, but as like artists and as innovators, like it was kind of interesting to see these things and going like, oh, okay, Sudeev, yes, the PPS-43, yes, that was the, the cheaper mass-produced submachine gun that helped the Russians mow down lots of Nazis. That's cool, right? That he they was go a into drunk, that. though, according to this movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, they were all probably drunks. You know? <laughs> the only guy who doesn't seem to be having any fun in this movie is Kalashnikov. Yes. The guy who's just sad that his gun keeps losing the beauty contests, right? <laughs> like, I mean, that's basically what the movie is. Yes. He's like a, it's like, it's like beauty queen drama, but about fucking rifles. Yes. And the way they describe them, they describe them as like a man describing you know a person that he's attracted to and even the way they talk about the talents like these guys are just like tinkers and engineers and probably like psychopaths i mean i think kalashnikov's a little bit of a psychopath you know this guy like if you had a five-year-old building an improvised gun in your backyard you would want to take him to a child psychologist i think you know but here men look at him and say you have a God-given talent, a God-given talent yeah. to produce an automatic rifle. Like, what is that? Well, there's a I lot of know. talk about, like, yeah, like, intuition and things fitting, you know? Like, yeah, it is, <laughs> it is very interesting, you know? Simple as a hammer. Right, right, you know, yeah, a tool, they they keep referring to it, you know, a tool. But again, like, it's totally devoid of any sense of, of, of awareness, of self-awareness particularly, but like, let's just be honest, like, historical awareness, you know? I mean, this was, again, this was like put together as a showcase for the Kalashnikov concern, which is a state-owned company, and which... In I think 2016, in the mid 2000s, once like Rustech and the and the the government took back over the Kalashnikov concern as a state company, they wrested control of the trademark away from the Kalashnikov family. So it it's weird to have this biopic where they're like revering this guy, but also these same government outlets like basically took away their ability to kind of like still make money off of this invention of his or trademark. So just more Russian business thuggery. Well, <laughs> that yeah, is... dude, don't worry. I read there was multiple lawsuits over three seconds uh, from, you know, the people who are, who are portrayed in it, their families suing them for invasion of privacy. And uh, yeah, you know. My God. Yeah, they don't give a shit. They don't <laughs> see. And that's why I wanted to do this because I was like, I really, I knew that this would be kind of a torturing week on a certain level, and and it was one that I had uh, like in the back of my mind for a long time. I really wanted to to have us do this just because it's sort of like. You know, it, I think it's so important to confront these things like every now and then and just look them in the face to really remind yourself of just how deranged like a, a, a national a, a, a national project can get. And, and when it's tied then into like popular cinema, like the, the ripple effects that these things can have, you know? And I, I think a lot of people look at, at Russia and they look at Putin and we're in the West and we, we often consume media that is very critical of it, you know? And, ob and obviously so, and rightly so. But I think it's like, man, every now and then it's like, 
it's so valuable to just like remind yourself of like what, what is on the other side when you go like, man, am I only getting one perspective on this? And then you go get the other perspective and you're like, oh fuck, (laughs) theirs is even more twisted. Theirs is even more deranged than I could have imagined, you know? Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, I, I was, I was looking at the clock, you know, during, during both of these movies at various points, cause they both do kind of just like drag on and on, you know? Uh, and that's fine. But, uh, I, I guess too, you know, selfishly, it's like as a student of, uh, of movies and especially of like classic Hollywood, I think that's, you know, one of the fascinating things about anything like this is how the things we know so well can so easily just be tinkered with like Kalashnikov to serve something else, right? The, the sort of like empty vessel of like the Hollywood structure. What, what kind of ideology would you like to put in this? You know, because as long as it's not like Marxism, like you're good, you know, Mm -hmm. just plug it in. We'll create drama. We'll create heroes and villains. We'll create, uh, things to celebrate, uh, and spectacle to, uh, you know, to show off Doug Collins in extreme close up at the free throw line, <laughs> sweating profusely, you know, um, one thing I, I wanted to bring this up totally just like random aside, but I, I learned a fun film fact about Doug Collins. Uh, he grew up in, in rural Illinois and he mm-hmm. was next door neighbors with John Malkovich Wow. Yeah, film fact. No yeah, Christopher, Illinois, the middle oh. of nowhere. These two men uh, were neighbors. God damn, dude. That's Would have loved to see Malkovich in, in either of these films doing his uh, <laughs> rounders <laughs> accent. <you know? laughs> yeah, dude. That would have been incredible. Good Sons of Illinois there. That's a good, that's a good, uh, good factoid for us, but... Well, Mars, I really appreciate you uh, uh, taking this, like, you know, this this twisted journey into the belly of the beast, into Putin's into Putin's project, Putin's cinema project, and and celebrating his seventieth birthday with some some bad movies. <laughs> so I was gonna say, like, you know, normally we're like. Hey, uh, you know, uh, what else would you recommend? But I, I really honestly can't think of, uh, of other, or I should say like Putin blockbusters that I would actually want to recommend. Although I, I think I would say if you had to watch one that is readily available, uh, I actually think Stalingrad 3d by, uh, the son of, of the great, uh, uh, Sergei Bondarchuk, Fyodor Bondarchuk, who's a huge figure in, you know, nationalist Russian cinema these days. But Stalingrad 3D is actually kind of tight. I would recommend <laughs> that one. But I wanted us to watch some bad ones, not a good one. So yeah, I just I've just been telling everyone to watch Hard to Be a God for ten years now. So all this <laughs> watch that it's a great movie, you know. Yeah, uh, but definitely, you know. Again, if you're a, if you're a basketball nut like I am, I'm telling you, just look on Vimeo, type in the Russian title, three seconds. Not it's got to be in Cyrillic or whatever. Um, <laughs> 
just, co- <laughs> just copy contact and paste. Marsh and he'll get you the link. That's right. You know? That's right. We'll, um, we'll get it to you. Yeah. So uh, next week it's uh, Ryan's topic, and uh, he's on assignment in L.A., but he has uh, sent us uh, a dispatch uh, to announce what we're doing next. Hollywood, California, where every street has a story. That's where I am right now. I'm out in Hollywood. I can, I can smell the piss in the air. I can see all the garbage that hasn't been washed away by any rain. But, you know, I'm having a good time. And I'm actually out here for, um, for a work thing, for a youth film festival, for showcasing some films by filmmakers 24 years old and younger. And I was thinking, you know, I'm watching a lot of movies past couple weeks here for filmmakers that are quite young. So, you know, next week when I fly into Chicago, me and the Gauntlet Boys, we got tickets to EO. We're going to go check that out at the Chicago International Film Festival. And I was thinking about, you know, movies made by people who are pretty old, like the director of EO. So I thought, let's lean into that a little bit. How about next week we talked about octogenarian cinema. Let's look at some films, maybe even sneak EO in there since it's going to be a little field trip for the Gauntlet Studios. And uh, let's just look at movies made by old folks because they certainly appeal to me as well. Uh, So looking forward to seeing both of you. Can't wait to to ride that donkey around the countryside. So see you both soon. (laughs) Let's get old, baby. Let's go. Yep. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone.